The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I'll begin in verse 17. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 17, down through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Let's stand together again seeing hymn number four, How Great Thou Art. Scripture teaches that it's the responsibility of every believer priest to... Support the local church as well as missions. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward, we'll bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can come together to worship you this morning, worship you through giving. We thank you for your grace that is so bountiful in our lives, and our gifts now are simply a response a small token of our gratitude for all that you have provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back here this morning. I, I don't know if it's a temperature in here or if it's just me, but it seems a little warm in here. Is that right? I mean, it's hard for me to tell. Last night I was sitting outside. It was about 53 degrees, and I had on shorts and a T-shirt. And Pam looked at me like I was nuts. And that's because when I left Kiev Friday morning, it was 23 below zero with a wind chill of 50 below zero. And Thursday afternoon, it was not quite that cold, maybe 10 degrees warm, and I had to uh, walk from the office where I taught back to my apartment, which was about a mile, right into a head, about a 20-mile-an-hour headwind. And I got back, and I sat down, and I started, uh, got online and started responding to some emails. And after about 20 minutes, my face really started to hurt. I realized it was just thawing out. <laughs> but most of the time I was there, it was really, uh, the weather was really nice. It was right up in the upper 20s, low 30s, several days of good uh, sunshine. And so that was nice. Usually it's overcast or snowy or just drizzly rain right in that area. But it was, it was real nice this time. And I thought I would uh, show you a couple of pictures so you'd get an idea of what, uh, what it was like. 
This is the class of students that Jim Myers has in the uh, Word of God Bible Institute this year. There's about uh, 12 students, and they some. It's a two-year program that he has, two-year curriculum. It goes year-round, and there are several graduates that have gone out and started churches. So it's it's exciting to see each year new uh, new people going out from the school trained and getting involved in different ministries. Now, there's this one young man right here, red-headed young guy, Vitaly, and he is uh, he's pretty good in his English. He's a real, uh, every time I would stop talking, he would be at my desk asking me questions. It's exhausting. Now, students don't realize that when it's time for a break, that means the, the prof needs a break, too. And he would follow me down the hall. I'm putting on my jacket. I'm putting my computer in my, my backpack. And he just keeps asking me questions, showing me things, articles in English. He's downloading. What do you think about his position? What do you think about that position? So uh, I think he, as well as uh, Eager Smallyar, who we're a little bit familiar with, are potential candidates for coming to the U.S. to study. Their English is good enough, and they certainly have the uh, uh, academic ability. The others I'm not as familiar with. Most of the students don't speak any English, so you really don't get to develop much of a relationship with them other than through an interpreter, but they're all extremely appreciative and responsive, very positive to everything that they're taught. This is Margaret. Margaret is uh, the translator. She is very good. Uh, everywhere I go, even in Jatomer, I had people coming up to me who were English speakers who would say, your translator is excellent. And so she has a tremendous ability. It's very difficult to catch the sense of what is being said in English because we don't realize how much of what we say is really idiomatic. And so they have to understand the idiom of what we're trying to communicate and then translate that over into another language and into another culture. So there's a lot involved. In fact, it's it's always... Uh, uh, important when I go over there when I'm going to teach something, like when I went down to Jatomer, to sit down with Eager and say, okay, what are the issues that are going on here? How do people here respond to certain things that are taught? What If I'm teaching on this verse, what's going to be the reaction? Are they uh, Pentecostal? What have they heard? What's the influence in this area from a lot of the uh, Pentecostal teaching in America? Because you know they have those folks have a lot of money and they publish a lot of their stuff in, in Russian. In fact, the, my book on spiritual warfare is in Russian, and we took 700 copies to Zhitomer and, and uh, passed out over, about 450 were distributed, and then Eager kept the rest to pass around. But it's a tremendous uh, thing to figure out how that culture and everything they're being taught and their background, and especially Russian Baptist, because they don't believe in eternal security. They have a, they, they look at it, eternal security as the watershed issue between Calvinism and Arminianism. Unlike in America, where it's usually sovereignty and free will, if you believe in eternal security, you're a Calvinist. I mean, and this is in their bones, and, and every time you go over or different speakers come, they try to address that issue from different perspectives, and it just takes time because this is what they've heard all their lives. And so you have to deal with those things. But Margaret does an excellent job, and she uh, I first met her when Jim had to fly her out to Almaty in Kazakhstan back in 2000. She does a great job. 
Here are just some shots of the city. This is from up at the, uh, I think I was up at the subway. Hmm? Yeah, well, you know, it's a little touch of home. I mean, they've got a great marketing strategy. They stick a McDonald's within a uh, hundred yards. I don't know how to stop this thing from advancing. So, they stick a McDonald's within a hundred yards or so of every metro stop, and so they do a, a tremendous business. But this gives you a little idea of the area right around where the office is. Just off the shot to the right is a large hotel, and across the street from the hotel is the apartment building where the uh, where the office and school are uh, are located. But it's a very busy, busy uh, intersection. One morning, I, there must have been a wreck there, snowing, and, and traffic was backed up about a mile. So they have all the problems of modern urban life. The city of Keep has three million at least, but it's concentrated. You know, they all live on top of each other. This is down the center of town. Uh, went down there with Sergey. Some of you who've been over to Pine Valley know uh, Sergei Shevchenko, and he's a, a Ph.D. student at, at uh, U of H now and was one of uh, Jim's students. I've got to learn to control this. This is the main, main street, Krishatik, which interestingly enough has its etymological root in the Russian word for baptism because back in about 900 when... Uh, whoever it was, an eager or somebody was Ivan or one of uh, Boris, that was his name, was uh, making a decision as to what the religious, the religion of, of uh, Kievan Rus was going to be. And so he invited representatives from Judaism and from uh, the Greek Orthodox or, and Roman and, uh, and Islam to come and interview with him, and he chose to be a Christian. And so he took everybody in town and marched him down the main uh, street, which is Krishatic now, and they took him down to the river to baptize him. So that's why the main street there is sort of Baptist uh, Boulevard for a r- rough translation. This is the open market along the side of the street. You just uh, walk by, and there'll be these little kiosks and these little babushkas out there selling uh, meat, and you can see the frozen fish. It was a little dark when I took the picture, but uh, it's maybe 25 degrees, and they're out there with vegetables and everything. It's frozen solid, and they'll sit there with a, and they might have uh, cans of uh, a soda, and they'll pop the top open, and you've got frozen soda coming out, and they're just out there. Selling it, so they, they don't make much, and it's it's a real example of poverty. Last weekend, I was singing "How Great Thou Art" at this church, the Christmas Church in Jatomer, and I was the only one singing in English. So it was stretching my memory to remember the the words. Everybody else in, in Russian. This church was built in 1898 as a Lutheran church. After the Bolshevik Revolution, the communists turned it into a stable, and then in the 60s. They turned it into a gym, and they built a, a, inter, a second floor in the middle of the uh, auditorium and remodeled it for a gym. And then after uh, Perestroika, once things opened up, then uh, a lot of money came in from the West initially to help out. And so the church was remodeled, refurbished. This building in the back was built, which is a beautiful three-story education facility that houses a school from kindergarten through uh, what would be comparable to their 12th grade. It's just a marvelous facility. 
This is where uh, Eager and Yulia Smolyar are uh, going to church. Eager is a graduate of the Word of God Bible Institute, and that's his family's two small children. And he really shows a tremendous amount of initiative, moved to Jatomer, which I believe is an area where he had lived at one time, and has made contact with three of the large Baptist churches there, and is now teaching three or four times a week. Uh, the pastor of the Christmas church has made one of the classrooms in the education facility available to him uh, one night a week, and he has about 14 or 15 students, and he is uh, teaching them. So uh, Eager has a, is carving out his own ministry in Jatomer, and it's a, Jatomer is a village of about 300,000, and a lot of these villages of what we would think of as fairly decent-sized cities from 100,000, let's say, to 500,000 throughout Ukraine and Russia have had no uh, impact from the West because most American missionaries are going to Kiev or they're going to Moscow or they're going to the, the really large cities. And many of these intermediate-sized villages don't get any missionary activity. So this is, has really opened the door there, and there's a tremendous response to the teaching of the Word because they just haven't had it. First night I was there, it was just a little chilly. First time I've ever had to uh, teach in my overcoat. But I wasn't the only one. Everyone else there was pretty uh, well bundled up, as you can see from looking at the picture. So it was probably about 50 degrees inside, and, and everybody had on their fur coats and their overcoats and and uh, people didn't stay away. The place was packed on uh, every night and Sunday morning. There were about 400 to 450 people there. The choir area in the front was packed with uh, excess overflow people. The balcony was full. And you can tell that everybody is uh, focused and concentrated. And just because it was uh, probably 45 to 50 degrees inside the auditorium, it didn't keep anybody away. Nobody made any excuses, so I don't want to hear any complaints about the temperature in here for you know, at least a couple of months. And on Sunday morning, I had an opportunity to teach for about an hour. I was going to teach on the prodigal son, but I, I thought, I don't have enough time to really deal with eternal security, so I shifted to John 13 and forgiveness and teaching the importance of cleansing from sin, which obliquely touched on issues related to eternal security. And it was a, one of those interesting times when I had to speak in a Baptist church. Now, every now and then you have to sort of go along with whatever the pastor typically does. And the pastor wanted to make sure that I would give an uh, invitation, not, not just a verbal invitation, but invite anyone to come forward who wanted to trust Christ as their Savior. Those of you who know me know how much I hate Finneyism and the whole idea of the manipulation of revivals and inviting people forward. So I always try to make the issues as clear as I can and then uh, uh, have the invitation. Well, it had been about three months or four months since they'd had anybody come forward for any reason whatsoever. And they'll come forward to confess their sins or you know, all kinds of things. I mean, they, they, there's an element of legalism in these old Russian Baptist churches. So this particular morning, the church service itself lasted for two hours. And they will sing three or four hymns. They'll have special music. The pastor will read from Scripture, and then he'll have about a ten-minute homily based on what he just read. And then they'll sing some more hymns, and then there'll be more choir music. And then this morning there was a young man who got to preach his second sermon. 
And so he had about a 10-minute sermon, and his background was that his father was the former pastor of the church. The current pastor of the church has been pastoring it for almost 50 years, since the uh, early 60s under under Khrushchev. And so uh, his mentor had been this young man's father. This young man looked like he was in his 30s. And so this man is, this young boy or young man, uh, is in training to be a pastor. Well, that morning when I finished the message and I explained the gospel and gave an invitation, and I didn't quite know, I gave the invitation, nothing happened, which is pretty much what I expected. And then uh, I turned it back over to the pastor and he stood up and they were singing a closing hymn and this young man came forward and was just was weeping. And I looked at the pastor, and the pastor was just tears were flowing down his face. And he came down out of the pulpit and knelt down with the young man, and he trusted Christ. And that young man was the younger brother of the other man who had preached. And this pastor, Daniel, had known both these boys since they were babies and had said that this, this young man that trusted Christ had always been obstinate. He had grown up in their schools and had always resisted the gospel, always resisted uh, any form of Christianity, and so that morning he had trusted Christ as a Savior. As a result of that, I was invited to come back. <laughs> and the pastor thought I walked on water, so... God has a sense of humor. This is a pastor of the church, Pastor Daniel, and he was uh, quite grateful that I came. Uh, Several years ago, he had received a copy of the book I did on spiritual warfare, and so he had read that, and it was all dog-eared, and so he was quite familiar with what my uh, theology, what my teaching was going to be, so he was quite glad to have me there. And then these last couple of shots are just... uh, just the morning uh, I was getting ready to leave, just to give you an idea of uh, what it was like. This was the night before when uh, Jim and Phyllis and I went down to uh, uh, into the city in order to uh, have our final meal together, have our last supper. So it just gives you a little idea of what's going on there. Okay, well, it's time to get into the Word. Uh, begin with a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can gather together this morning in freedom to study your word. We thank you that we have your word, that you have revealed it through the prophets and apostles, and you have preserved it through God the Holy Spirit, who indeed indwells us and teaches us and guides and directs our thinking through your word. And Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that we might uh, not take this for granted, but we might recognize that this is a priority for us as believers, that we might not be conformed to the world, but that we might be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by having you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This is a well-known passage, and it's a passage that has been distorted by many people over the ages. It is a passage that deals with a vital question, a question that is one that uh, each of us as individuals are 
going to have to deal with during this coming year, especially if we're having any kind of interaction with the culture around us. Jesus asked the question of his disciples in verse 13, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Of course, this year we're going to be faced with the release of the movie The Da Vinci Code, which promises to be a blockbuster. It's going to come out in May and and be released worldwide. This was even an issue over in Kiev. It's been translated into I don't know how many languages. And this was one of the reasons, uh, or one of the reasons Jim uh, asked me to teach about this, because whenever we are witnessing to people, we have to be aware of the issues that they might raise. And trust me, when the lies that are in this particular uh, book and movie uh, really get out there through the through the film version then when we are involved in witnessing to people, we're going to hear a lot of uh, very technical objections. And the problem with technical objections is they require technical answers. And most Christians are so ignorant of church history, they're so ignorant of how we got the Bible, how we got the Gospels, they're so ignorant of doctrines related to uh, the person of Christ and the Scriptures to go to, that they're just going to be absolutely befuddled and fumbling around in the process of trying to communicate the Gospel to people. So this is a key question. Who is Jesus Christ? So he asks his disciples, and they say, well, there's a lot of different opinions floating around. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And it's at this point that Peter said, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, this is a key verse for establishing the principle that I want to study this morning. That is the importance of personal evangelism and witnessing in the believer's life. We've been going through a study for the last several months on basics. And in the last part of this series, we've been looking at basics related to the Christian life. We looked at basic spiritual principles that are that undergird all spiritual growth. And from there, we looked at the uh, responsibilities of the priesthood. And now we're looking at the duties of an ambassador. Uh, Bruce, you want to crank the sound up in here just a tad. Give a little more power to the speakers. So Jesus is talking to Peter. And what I want to lay out here initially is the biblical basis for evangelism. And this is a foundation. Matthew 16, 18, he addresses Peter. And in this statement, there's a play on words. There's a bit of a pun to establish the doctrine. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, the name Peter comes from the noun Petros, which means a rock or a stone. Now, it's a masculine noun. And then Jesus said, and on this rock, and he shifts from uh, using a masculine to using the feminine demonstrative. So a feminine demonstrative has to refer to a feminine noun or concept, not to a masculine noun. So when he says this rock, he's not referring to Petros or Peter's name. He's not saying that I'm building my church on you, Peter, which is the Roman Catholic uh, error. He's not building it on Peter. Peter isn't the foundation of the church. Peter isn't the founder of the church. 
uh, he is talking about something different when he shifts to the feminine. He actually has in mind the noun pestis, which is uh, a feminine noun for faith. It is on this rock, and he shifts from petros to petra, which is a feminine. He says, and this is, and petra refers to a large rock formation or a bedrock or a foundation stone. So the best way to translate this would be to say, I say to you that you are Peter Petros, and on this foundation stone, which is the statement he just made, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this foundation I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then in the next verse he says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the keys are not apostleship. The gift of apostleship was not distributed until after the ascension, according to Ephesians 4, uh, 8 through 12. When Jesus ascended, it was then that he gave gifts to men, including the gift of apostle, prophet, uh, evangelist, and pastor and teacher. So this is not talking about Peter being given the position of, as the cornerstone of the church. He's not being given apostleship here. He is What, what he's referring to is is witnessing the keys to the kingdom is the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God who has died on the cross for our sin. That is what is the basis for our entrance into heaven. So the biblical basis for evangelism begins here with an understanding of the nature of the keys. And it is something that is given to every believer that we can proclaim the truth of the word of God. Now, as Jesus had, goes to the cross and he's crucified following the, the crucifixion and resurrection, he gives a commission to all believers, and this commission is related to witnessing. It's not just to the, to the disciples. Some people come to that error because Jesus is addressing what appears to be the eleven who are in front of him. But he is addressing all of the church through them, and it's clear that it is the responsibility of every believer to be involved in witnessing. This is part of our ambassadorship, as we will see in a minute. So I just want to briefly go through these parallel passages. These are sometimes referred to as the Great Commission, and a form of this is given in every gospel as well as in Acts. Mark 16:15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the word there, keruso, means to make a proclamation. It is not what we normally think of as preaching today. Preaching today is more of a rhetorical or oratorical form. Preaching at this time was simply making a pronouncement. A kerux or a uh, uh, would be a herald in the ancient world, and they didn't have CNN or Fox News or or uh, radio to make a, a announcement. So they would send a a herald through the town, and his job was to go and to make the announcement, and not to stop and talk to anybody, not to uh, get involved in any, any distractions, but to focus on making the message clear, making the message known as he went through the town or the village or the city, uh, carrying out his. Uh, task of proclaiming a message. So Jesus gives the task to the disciples to go into all the world and to proclaim the gospel to every creature. 
We see a parallel to this in Acts 1.8, just before Jesus ascended into heaven. He told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. And he says, and then you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, a quick observation is there is a connection here between power when the Holy Spirit comes and the task of being witnesses, that the real power in the witnessing of the believer's life today is not in your intellectual capabilities to present the gospel, not in your persuasiveness, it's not in some form of technique. You don't have to find just just the right way to to say it, just the right way to answer their objections. The real power comes, as we'll see in other passages, from God the Holy Spirit, who is the sovereign executive of evangelism. This means that you and I can just relax in the process of proclaiming the gospel. We do the best we can. We may fumble a bit. We may stumble around. We may not be able to uh, answer somebody's questions to the best of our ability. But remember, the issue isn't uh, reason. The issue isn't... Uh, uh, whatever they think it is, the issue is making the gospel clear, and it's God the Holy Spirit who drives the point home. And no matter how we may fumble or bumble around, no matter how we may uh, state the gospel in some sort of unclear manner and go home and kick ourselves because we didn't say this when they said that and all this other stuff, we don't have to worry about it. We can just relax and let God the Holy Spirit uh, work with what we say, and He always does that. Luke 24:45. we have another uh, statement that Jesus gave in another context to the disciples to uh, proclaim the gospel. And here he's talking to the eleven plus at least two others. He has just met with Cleopas and another unnamed uh, disciple, not one of the eleven, but just another, another disciple on the road to Emmaus. He opened the scriptures to them, and then he comes back to Jerusalem, and he meets with the eleven, uh, Cleopas and the other uh, unnamed disciple had traveled back to Jerusalem, announced the fact that they had seen the Lord on the way to Emmaus, and then Jesus suddenly appeared to them. And at that point, Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, Thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance, that literally is change of mind in relation to who Jesus is, it's not remorse. You know, that's the problem you have with so many people. They think repentance is remorse. And in fact, this is one of the things I always have to deal with in, in over in Ukraine or in Russia, is that the word for repentance that they use is remorse. So you have to cut and educate and cut through a lot of stuff because the poor translation automatically uh, implies this sort of uh, uh, emotional remorse, feeling sorry for your sins and everything else. It's necessary. Uh, he teaches that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Same thing that is said in Acts 1.8. Start in Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth. The gospel message is designed to be taken to everybody because Christ has died for everybody. So a foundation element of the gospel is understanding unlimited atonement. And Jesus concludes in Luke 24:48, And you are witnesses of these things. So as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have studied the word, understand the gospel, we too become witnesses 
even though we're not direct eyewitnesses, we are eyewitnesses through their eyes, and it's our job to continue the task of taking the gospel to those who are ignorant of the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. This was clearly carried out. For example, the Apostle Paul, when he is saved as an apostle out of time, he says that Jesus told him, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. So, so Paul carried this out. It was understood throughout Acts that the way this command was to be applied was to take the gospel to around from city to city, village to village, and to tell people the message that Jesus Christ had died on the cross for their sins. One other time that Jesus appeared to the disciples is given in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. If you look carefully at the context there and you go back a couple of verses, what you will discover is that Jesus had given the uh, disciples, the eleven, a task. And he, he talks to the, the women at the tomb and then he talks to the disciples and then he says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, that is the other believers in the Jerusalem area, Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So he calls for a meeting, not just with the eleven, but with more than the eleven. And then in verse 11 we're told, or skip down to verse 16, we're told, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. So who all is going there? Just the eleven? No, there's other believers as well. So he's not just addressing the disciples. And there he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and by teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So the command is to make disciples, make students, make learners of everything. And that includes the starting point to the end point. Uh, starting with evangelism and explaining the gospel, extending through teaching everything related to the spiritual life. So again and again and again, uh, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he made the point to give the command to his disciples that they were to be involved in witnessing. And this is how they understood it, and this is how it developed through the book of Acts. Peter on the day of Pentecost uh, has a gospel message. In Acts 3, again, he has an, a gospel message. Then he and John are going to the temple in Acts 4, and there they are again proclaiming the gospel. We see Philip, uh, one of the those who are chosen in Acts 6, uh, explaining the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then in Acts 7, we see Stephen uh, giving another message that included a gospel presentation. And then, of course, we have Paul and Barnabas going out on their uh, first missionary journey, then Paul on his second, third missionary journey as we go through Acts. Again and again and again, what they are doing is carrying out the mandate that is given by the Lord Jesus Christ prior to, prior to his ascension. So we see that witnessing is a responsibility of the believer, and it's part of our ambassadorship. And this comes to play in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. So turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. And this gives us a foundation for witnessing. 
It's part of our ambassadorship. Now, what is an ambassador? Well, first of all, an ambassador is someone who is appointed by a nation or a king or a ruler to represent that nation. And it is the king, it is the government, it's the ruler that does the appointing. The ambassador is not self-appointed. He is not on his own self-appointed mission. So the conclusion by analogy is that every believer is appointed an ambassador by God the Father because it is God the Father who is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about the fact that this is part of being a new creature in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I want you to notice the use of that first person plural pronoun there, us. Is that referring to only the apostles? Or is it referring to all believers? Well, it's referring to all believers in context because God has reconciled us, meaning all believers, not just the apostles. He has reconciled us to himself. And so the ministry of reconciliation given to us is that that we are to go out and to proclaim that message to other people. Now, this is part of our ambassadorship is seen in uh, the next couple of verses, verse uh, 20 specifically. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, an ambassador is not only appointed by the head of the king, the kingdom, the ruler, whoever that may be, but it is the responsibility of that ruler to logistically support and protect and to provide for the ambassador as he is sent out from his kingdom He is to be supported in case there are any kind of attacks against him. So that involves not only logistical support, but also security and protection. And there is a certain authority that is given to the ambassador that comes from the king or the president or the government or whoever the the governing power is. A third observation is that that ambassador represents someone else so that the ambassador's life is no longer his own. He has to be careful how he lives. He lives to represent the one who sent him, not to live for himself. So it involves uh, an exchange of priorities, and he must place the cause and the concerns of the kingdom he represents above his own cares and concerns. An ambassador also needs to avoid becoming entangled in the thought forms and the culture and the world view of the culture to which he is sent. And see, that is true for the believer. We don't need to be caught up with the thinking of the culture that we're going to, whether it's here in America, whether it's in Russia, whether it's in in Europe or Asia or Africa. Every culture has its human viewpoint, thought forms, and value system. And so as an ambassador, we need to be able to identify the values of the culture that we're going to, we need to understand how that culture thinks because in in our situation, we've grown up in that culture and we have to figure out how to get rid of that, which is what Paul refers to in Romans 12, not to be conformed to the world. So we have to avoid becoming entangled by the thinking 
of the culture to which we are being sent. So we have to do a lot of work studying the Word of God to find out what the truth is so that then we can in turn evaluate our own thinking to remove the human viewpoint cultural influences on our own thinking. And that is a process that takes the rest of our lives. So the ambassador needs to avoid becoming entangled and influenced by the culture or the worldview of the people to whom he is sent. Fifth, ambassadors have instructions in written form. There's a commissioning, and this is our commission that we've already looked at, to take the gospel to, a, to the Gentiles, to the world. So we have our instructions and we have uh, specific guidelines in the Word of God as to how to do this, what the content of our message is, as well as the methodology. Now, a lot of folks don't understand that. There are right ways and wrong ways to evangelize people. You find all kinds of different methods used today because in America we think that the end justifies the means, so it doesn't matter how we evangelize people. And the first time that was driven home to me was back in the uh, mid-'70s. Some of you have been around long enough to remember the Campus Crusade had a campaign called I Found It. And they stuck this, uh, st- this statement, I found it, on bumper stickers and on billboards, and it was everywhere. And I remember going up to uh, visit Randy Price at Dallas Seminary about 1974, and there was a, a neighbor of his that was an unsaved Jew, and this guy made the comment. He said, you know, we Jews have respect for God. We'd never put him on a billboard. And that was the first time I began to think that w- the way we approach witnessing reveals certain underlying presuppositions about God and about nature and about reality. And sometimes we can actually uh, compromise the message of our witness by how we present the gospel. And so this involves a little further uh, thought than what we're going to get into this morning. Furthermore, uh, point number six, the ambassador represents his country, does not treat rejection as personal. They're not rejecting you when you present the gospel. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. And that's the problem many of us have had is that when we're afraid to witness, we don't want to deal with the rejection. We don't want to deal with whatever uh, negative consequences might ensue. Somebody calls us a uh, you know, religious zealot or Jesus freak or whatever it might be. And we don't like that. We want people to think that we're intellectually capable and we don't want to be run down by other people. So sometimes we're a little hesitant to, to give the gospel. But the point is, as an ambassador, it's our job to give the gospel and it, and recognize that it will be rejected many times, but it's not a rejection of us. It's not something we should take personally. It's, a rejection of God and His grace. Now, what is involved in witnessing? I want to go over some general principles that we need to be aware of when we are explaining the gospel to those who are not saved. First of all, we have to recognize that witnessing is a responsibility of every believer. Witnessing is a responsibility of every believer. And there are two areas in which we witness in our life. We witness with our life itself, and we witness with our lips. We witness with our life, 2 Corinthians 3.3 3 and 6.3. Unbelievers watch us. They observe us. Sometimes they observe us very carefully, and it may be years they watch us to see, okay, I understand what they're saying. 
Now, does that match their life? What's, what's the relationship here? We're not always aware of the fact that people are watching us. But there's a, there's a sort of a double-edged problem here is that too many times I hear believers say, well, my witness is my life. Your life is a support for what you say with your mouth. Don't, don't think that by somebody just watching how you live that they can figure out that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. See, that's one of those little rationalizations that people use to avoid stepping out and uh, explaining the gospel to folks. We have to explain the content of the gospel to people. Second uh, Peter 3.15 says that we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. That means we have to understand the gospel message, the content of the gospel message, but we also have to be ready to explain that within the context of the culture. That means there has to be flexibility. There's no such thing as just drive-by evangelism. You don't just throw that say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and then you're out of there. Get involved in a conversation with people. Get involved in understanding what they're, what, they're, what they're dealing with, what they're trying to understand. So witnessing, point number one, is a responsibility of every believer. Point number two, the challenge to witness based on 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and following, is based on two doctrines, the doctrine of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and unlimited atonement, that Christ is a propitiation not for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Because Jesus Christ died for everyone, everyone needs to hear the gospel and have it made clear to them. Jesus Christ died for them, no matter how obnoxious they may be to you or to me, Jesus Christ died on the cross for them. Sometimes I think, although we're all saved by grace, there are some people who are saved by an extra measure of grace. And we all know people who are like that. But it, nevertheless, it's our responsibility to give them the gospel no matter how, uh, how much we may not like that person, how distasteful it may be, no matter how socially unacceptable they may be. Who knows what God the Holy Spirit is going to do uh, in that person's life. Third thing, third principle. Your effectiveness as a witness depends on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It's not dependent on your power. It's not dependent on your education, your intellectual ability, your persuasiveness. We have to remember that God the Holy Spirit is the sovereign executive of salvation and evangelism. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The power is in the Word itself because the Word is truth. And because it is true, it has a, it's not a mystical power. It is the power of truth. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, that is uh, instrumental dative there, by means of power and by means of the Holy Spirit. So he actually says three things about the gospel. Our gospel did not come to you by means of the word only. So it's not just words. The issue with an unbeliever isn't just an intellectual problem, as we'll see from Romans 1, 18 and following. The problem is a spiritual problem. 
It's not that they don't know anything. It's they don't accept it. They don't want to know. They are in rejection. So Paul says, Our gospel did not come to you by means of word only, but by means of power and by means of the Holy Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit who works together with the Word of God to make the issues clear to the unbeliever. And so we can just relax. It's just our job to get the message out there. It's God the Holy Spirit's job to make it clear and drive it home. So we don't need to sweat about the fact that this person may ask this question or that question and uh, get get too confu- uh, concerned about the fact that, well, you know, I'm supposed to be able to give an answer for the hope that's in me, and I can't answer it. Great. Tell them you'll go look up the answer and get back with them next week. Sometimes it takes uh, a long time. Most of you know the uh, story about this last year when uh, I had the privilege of uh, uh, explaining the gospel again to uh, uh, Colonel Callahan, who had been a professor of military science of mine back in college. First time I gave him the gospel was in 1970. And it took from 1970 until I led him to the Lord last April for him to get saved. Now, that takes a while. And you never know where we are in the process of someone's life. That could just as easily have been somebody else who finally uh, brought that to completion. But but as Paul uses the analogy, some, one person plants, another person waters, somebody else waters, and it, it may take years. Uh, some studies say that it takes, the, the on the average, an unbeliever hears the gospel 7.5 times. I wonder, I know a few people who give that half gospel presentation. The average unbeliever hears the gospel seven and a half times before he's saved. So we never know where we are in that pipeline. We may be the first person, and they hear, and they say, I'm not so sure about that. But we lay the groundwork, and then it uh, continues, and then it may be uh, months or years before they finally hear it and respond. But it's our job to be faithful in explaining the gospel to unbelievers. And it is God the Holy Spirit who makes it clear. That gives us confidence so that we can just relax and do our job and leave the results up to the Lord. Fourth principle. Therefore, because it is God the Holy Spirit who is in charge, we should not be discouraged by opposition, by resistance, by questions you can't answer, or by rejection. Now, that's easy to say, but sometimes it's hard for us to take. But the reality is, just relax. It's up to God. Don't be discouraged by these things. You may say, you know, I just worked so hard at explaining the gospel to that person. Well, you did a great job. Your job was to make it clear. Your job wasn't to get them saved. As I'll point out in a minute, it's not salesmanship. This is one of the great dangers that has entered into evangelism in American evangelicalism is that we have adopted salesmanship techniques to evangelize. We think that what we have to do is, is just get them, say it right, uh, get, get them with the right motivation, uh, sing 25 verses of Just As I Am. If we just do the right thing, say the right thing, have the right argument, present it the right way, then they'll get saved. Well, there's such a thing as negative volition and hostility to the gospel. And no matter how accurate you may be, no matter how clear your, your presentation may be, there are thousands of people who are just going to reject it because they reject the truth. 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Paul did not let a little opposition stop him or slow him down because the issue is serving the Lord. The issue is making a case, presenting the gospel, and we know we can expect that just as the world was hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be hostile to us as well. Fifth point, we have to realize that God has chosen believers to be the agents in witnessing. He's not going to do it apart from you. This is a tremendous privilege that we have. And it constantly is impressed upon me that it's, it's not me that's doing anything. It's not my teaching. It's not witnessing. Uh, I didn't say anything or do anything different last week than anybody else did in that church in, in Jatomer. But it was by presenting the gospel, uh, I had the privilege of watching the Lord work. And that's really how we should look at it. We present the gospel, and every now and then the Lord uses us. And it's just amazing that he uses fallen sinful creatures like us to bring others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we just get to stand by and watch. And if we don't get involved in witnessing, you know, the Lord's going to get the gospel to that individual, but we miss out on the privilege of being used by the Lord, serving the Lord, and watching him do something like that through us. And I tell you, there's nothing quite as humbling as to... Uh, go someplace like last week when I was in Jatomer and have this pastor just taking my that spiritual warfare book. He just had it all folded up and it was all dog-eared and he just had tears running down his face. He was so glad for me to be there. And I thought, gee, I remember writing that. I had no idea anything like this would happen. I mean, what what did I say? I, I need to go read that book again. <laughs> And it's just how the Lord uses it, and it, 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 we just get to be instruments in that process. So the believer is the agent of witnessing. God is not going to do it apart from us. This is a privilege that we have to be uh, used by the Lord in this way. Six, but God uses prepared believers. We need to know the biblical issues. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready so that we can take advantage of any opportunity. And this starts by knowing the biblical issues. We need to understand uh, basic things about uh, about doctrine, uh, basic doctrines related to sin, that the issue isn't personal sin. The issue is Adam's sin, that people are not condemned because they sin. They're, sin, they're condemned because they're born that way. They have a, an inherited sin nature. And that sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. We have to understand who Jesus Christ is. We have to be able to explain to them who Jesus is. It's not Jesus who lives down the street. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And he is, he was uh, born in Israel uh, and Bethlehem is in fulfillment of all the prophecies. We may have to go back to Genesis. We may have to answer hundreds of questions in the process, but we have to explain who Jesus is. It's not the Jesus of the Mormons. It's not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It is the Jesus who is presented in the Old Testament. We have to make sure that when people are believing in Jesus, that the Jesus they're believing in is the Jesus of the Bible and not some other Jesus. We have to understand 
that the solution to sin is a substitutionary atonement of Christ. We have to be able to explain that. Now, some ways we can explain it very simply with some folks, and especially with their children. The gospel can be very, very simple. But then there are other folks who, because of their background, because of education, because of what they've been exposed to, they're going to ask more difficult questions. They have either objections that are real to them or they're objections that they've heard from somebody else. And so they're either throwing these questions up as a smokescreen or a diversion to try to get you to to uh, just change the subject and talk about something else, or maybe these are real questions for them. Maybe they are uh, people who think of themselves as fairly intelligent, very educated, uh, sophisticated people, and what they've seen of Christianity is what you see on, on TBN. And so their intelligence is insulted by what they think Christianity is. So it is up to us to explain to them what Christianity really is, and that may take time. That's when they may observe you, get to know you, uh, have a relationship with you, and it may take years. That was one of the things, I think, that was a was an issue with uh, uh, Callahan back when I was witnessing to him was, was, can I really trust this without putting my brain in neutral? And there are many people who uh, feel that way today, and so we have to make the gospel uh, clear to them and make sure they understand that, no, this doesn't mean that you just uh, turn into some kind of a, a moron. So you have to be prepared. God uses prepared believers. Furthermore, a prepared believer also understands how to answer some of the questions which unbelievers will raise. See, you know your culture. What are the questions they're going to ask? Well, they may ask questions about creation and evolution. They may ask questions like with the Da Vinci Code. Well, I heard... That, that the Gospels really weren't written for hundreds of years after Jesus, or, or hasn't the Bible been translated so many times that we don't know what it really says? We have to be prepared to answer those questions. If you were going to be a missionary to Zambia or to Uruguay or to uh, Papua New Guinea, and part of your training would be to understand the culture that you were going to, their beliefs, their religious backgrounds, all of these different things, so that you could more effectively communicate what you're saying. It's not that the message changes, but you have to know your audience. The Apostle Paul did. When he approached a Jewish audience, he started on the basis of what they had as common ground in the Old Testament. But when he went to a Gentile audience, he went back to say, I came to proclaim to you the God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He had to go back to creation. So just because the the, uh, audience is different, you have to change how you present the gospel. So you have to know, know your audience and where they're coming from. Today we also have to deal with issues related to homosexuality, issues related to Islam, issues related to the exclusivity of the gospel. We have to be prepared to handle these. You have to understand too, and this only comes with experience. I'm not an expert at this by any means, but we have to understand when a person is just uh, throwing a red herring on the trail to divert us and to get us off track, and when the question that they're a- asking is one that is a serious problem for them that needs to be addressed uh, before they're going to be ready to accept the gospel. And sometimes it's just it takes time, it takes experience on our part before we learn to be able to discern uh, the difference here. Eighth point. Effective personal contact is necessary for most witnessing. 
It's There are people who will just read a tract or they will see something written and, and they'll respond. But that's that's rare. God can use anything, though. But what he uses mostly is people talking to people, people building a relationship. It's not just some sort of uh, drive-by evangelism. 1 Thessalonians 2.1, Paul says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance uh, unto you. Their entrance. He came to them. He, he didn't just send a letter to, to them explaining the gospel. He, Paul went to these cities and these towns, and he lived with the people, and he communicated uh, the gospel to them, and it was not in vain. Ninth point. Witnessing is not salesmanship or manipulation. It's not trying to figure out just the right thing to say, uh, which is so typical today. It's not using some sort of uh, multi-level marketing scheme. It's not a, uh, another form of Amway. It's not, uh, you, if you remember that commercial, I think it was for some kind of hair color or something, if she tells two people, and she tells two people, and she tells two people, you know, the screen divides and divides again on the television until you have thousands of people up there. But you'll hear this. Uh, evangelism explosion was one technique that uh, uh, was used to, to train people to uh, teach the gospel. But it comes down to where the emphasis is on technique and not on communicating the gospel. We have to recognize a few things related to uh, the realities of people. And I'm going to come back and finish up with this next week because uh, we're running out of time and I have a number of things I still want to cover on this. We got started a little late because of my report from Kiev, so we will uh, come back next time and just talk about things that we have to keep in mind uh, when we are witnessing observations of uh, general principles and, and a few ideas of how you can make the gospel clear. Now, we're going to close today a new way. We're going to finish up. I'm not going. Don't worry. I didn't get a, <laughs> I didn't turn into a Baptist last week. We're not going to have a walking the aisle invitation, but I'm going to close in prayer as normal, and then we're going to sing a closing hymn. And a closing hymn is going to be, My Hope is in the Lord. So let's bow our, 406, but let's bow our heads first to close in prayer. And then after we sing, I'm going to ask Dr. Rich Klein if he would please dismiss us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That the psalmist said that it is, it is in your light that we see light. And it is in the light of your word that we understand the realities of our existence, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that the free gift that you have given us is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The scripture says that you loved us in such a way that you sent your son to die on the cross for us. And that on the cross he paid the penalty for all sin. So that sin is no longer the issue the issue is, what do we think about Jesus Christ? He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And the scripture says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never understood the gospel, this is your opportunity to make your salvation certain. Right where you sit, you can make that decision. You can
put your trust in Jesus Christ. And the instant that you do so, God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And at that point, he declares you justified. And he gives you eternal life, which can never be taken from you. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with what we have studied today to recognize that we are your ambassadors, that you have appointed us as the agents of communicating the gospel to a a fallen race, to lost humanity. And it is not just for pastors, for professional Christian workers, for missionaries, but that every single believer is a missionary sent to their particular culture to explain the gospel and to proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, drive these principles home in our own thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.